0: Everything changes as soon as you start to really understand how something is growing um, and the time that it takes to, to get it there. Um, you know, like with with our pigs, it, it's a bit ridiculous. I mean, you know, we had 10 pigs running around on 64 acres. It's not, not many people can do that, right? But we noticed the quality of
1: the meat. This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. sustainable restaurant model connecting with local producers and cooking delicious food seems like commonplace more and more. But for chef Evan Hayter, food is an extension of his restaurant story. And in eating it, you become part of his mission to give back to the land that provides so much. Evan, we talk about sustainability with food and restaurants, but you're really living, breathing example of how far you can push that.
0: Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, that's a <laughs> that's an awesome intro. Um, yeah, you're taking me back already. Um, yeah, we we try to do the best that we can. Um, I think it's I think it's all most chefs that I surround myself with
1: um, try to do anyway. Tell us a little bit about the restaurant and this this story behind it.
0: Uh, well, the the restaurant was uh, was established in 2011. In February, it opened. Uh, I came on board um, about a year later. Uh, I've been part of the business now for five years. Um, but the restaurant itself operates entirely off grid. Um, we're not connected to mains power at all. Uh, we we treat all of our wastewater. All of our green waste uh, goes to either composting or to the to the pigs um and yeah it's it has its challenges obviously um losing losing power in the middle of a busy saturday service or something like that um because we do operate entirely off grid so no mains connection at all um so um yeah it it has its challenges definitely
1: tell us about some of those challenges especially in setting that up and working in that manner
0: well, uh, I guess the technology has come a long way in the last, uh, you know, 12, 12 years. Um, we operated on some pretty, pretty old, old batteries for a long time. Um, you know, really the early, the early days of, of, um, the off grid kind of uh, operating and, yeah, we, we used to, we had to manage the load is probably the best way of putting it. So you, on a Saturday, you've got everything running, all your fridges, all your freezers, um, you know, front of house, heating, cooling water, you, you name it, uh, dishwashers, all these little things that you just sort of take for granted and, you know, turning on a RoboCoop or something like that. Um, and not overloading, not overloading the system because then it just shuts down and then it's half an hour to turn it turn it all off reboot it and get it going again so it's um yeah it's good fun though you learn, you learn a lot
1: you'd like to sort of explain yourself uh, as farmers first as opposed to a restaurant and sell a door what, what what are you what are you growing there and what's happening on the land
0: um as as far as the veggies and fruit that we produce we're we're quite specific about what we like to grow um we're very lucky in our region, and within say an hour and an hour and a half drive of where we are located, um, we can we can pretty much get anything you could ever ever need or ever want. And there's always someone that grows it better than you. If it's um, you know um, tomatoes, for example, they've just finished up for us. Um, our tomatoes are pretty good, um, so we so we grow them. Um, carrots. You know, beetroots, things like that that require a lot more depth in soil. And people that have been, you know, growing organically or biodynamically for a lot longer than I have um, produce far better carrots and beetroots. So, so I like to source those, those things from people that produce it better than I do. It's, it's uh, not worth, you know, my time to try to claim to be as good as them. So,
1: <laughs> you've, um, Forge some pretty amazing connections with local growers and farmers. You, tell us about pig farmers. What sort of uh, relationships have you fostered there? Well, we
0: we farm our own our own pigs. Um, there are there are saddleback saddleback Duroc cross, um, and so they're they're born on the property and you know raised, and we we look after them every day and give them belly rubs and. You know, all those things, all the things that pigs need.
1: <laughs> Take us into the life of uh, the pigs on the farm. What what sort of environment are they are they growing in?
0: Uh, so, Aramir is about 135 acres. Um, so, there's, there's quite a lot of land um, for the pigs to roam on. We like to move them around. Um, I mean, originally we um, – I, I got the pigs in the first place because of a – extremely invasive weed called the arum lily it's coming from africa and it's um it just takes over waterways and the only way of kind of controlling that was to spray it with really really uh you know toxic agricultural sprays and um you know it killed it killed everything as well as the uh the arum lily and it's it's your responsibility as a property owner to um to manage uh these these lilies uh, but no one does because no one sort of polices it, but I just try to try to come up with a better way of doing it rather than spraying them and um, I found out that pigs um, are, are pretty pretty tolerant of these things and and actually they love they love digging them up and we go along and pick up the bulbs afterwards and, and burn them off and um, yeah it's yeah, so it started as a kind of regeneration project, uh, and the byproduct of that is delicious pork. Um, so, the pigs are as much of you know our story as as you can as any of us. <laughs> They're just as important.
1: <laughs> tell, tell us about their life cycle there, and um, you know has, has has that changed as you sort of try and get the best product that lands on the plate as well?
0: Yeah, de- definitely. Um, the life cycle of, of our pigs. Um, well, we have we have one sow and we have one boar. Uh, the boar lives on another another farm. Uh, he's a Duroc boar. And our sow is gorgeous, gorgeous girl. Um, she was born on the property about five years ago. Um, and she's um, Duroc Saddleback. And she's a big brown, big brown pig, big floppy ears. And like I say, she's absolutely gorgeous. Um, she uh, she roams around on about 64 acres at the moment. Uh, and basically we, we get her and pig. Uh and then there's the you know the gestation, we and then the, the piglets are born, we raise them and they take about a year to get to to um where we where we like them uh before we send them off <laughs> for that one day. It's always sad.
1: <laughs> well after that one day and um you get them back in the kitchen, but what do what do you do with a with a whole pig and how do you utilize that across the menu?
0: Yeah, um, I mean, they get used in all sorts of uh, different processes. Um, you know, all the all the fat. A lot, well, a lot of a lot of that um, shoulder fat goes into lardo. Um, the we, we'll do big batches of, say, pork ragu. Um, you know, it, currently our our kids' meal is um, it's a it's a pork ragu pasta essentially, and it's made with great West Australian certified organic flour, eggs from our chickens, um, and then it's pork ragu, which is made from tomatoes from the garden, olive oil off the property, biodynamic onions, and and our pork, which is, I believe, sensational. So,
1: (laughs) Take us back to when you were young. What sort of role did food play for you and your family?
0: Uh, It wasn't – it wasn't that it wasn't that important actually um my parents are both in teaching uh grew up in karatha and um yeah my uh, you know our, our regular night was my mother cooking just you know your, your uh meat and three veg kind of um dishes uh you'd you'd have uh yeah it was it was good food uh you know not not exceptional but um uh, but good <laughs>
1: when did you start to get interested in uh in food and see that as a potential career?
0: Uh oh, I um I left school uh, just in just into year eleven. Um I I just wasn't enjoying school at all. Um I was absolutely acing maths, but I couldn't yeah, I couldn't do English to save myself. Uh and yeah, it didn't leave me too many, too many options. Uh, I had a cousin who had a restaurant, and he said, "Come and come and wash some dishes and hang out in the kitchen, and you might enjoy it." So I went and did that for two weeks, and yeah, I absolutely loved it. Um, I just, uh, I'm, I'm not sure. It's you know, we all get pretty addicted to it, I guess. Um, it's it's a pretty hectic place. There's lots of lots of pressure, and um, I just, I didn't mind it at all, really enjoyed it. Uh, and and it was something completely different to anything that I'd done. So uh, I, I finished my two-week stint uh, with him. And then uh, I, I went back to school for, for a week and wasn't enjoying it. And, um, yeah, I, I basically signed up to TAFE and, and the rest was sort of history, I guess. I started cooking and got an apprenticeship a couple of months later just because TAFE ended up being too much like school as well. So... I just wanted to work
1: what were some of the really key sort of uh venues or, or people that ha- that influenced you in the early years as a chef
0: um i was quite lucky uh that i i when i started my apprenticeship i started at a restaurant called dear friends which is in the um swan valley uh just outside of perth and my my head chef then uh, his name was philip soir he was um just the most, the the loveliest Singaporean chef, and he'd basically moved to the Swan Valley for the simple life. Um, he'd won uh, multiple culinary Olympic gold medals with the Singaporean team. Uh, he'd worked all over the world. Um, been in France for years and years. He spoke fluent French, Mandarin, English. Uh, and he was just a really gentle character. And I think I, I spent two years um at Dear Friends and he just he showed me a lot and, and it was I was very lucky to have that as my first job. You know, I had friends working at other restaurants without having pans thrown at them, and I I I didn't have that. <laughs> um I was, you know, so I'm extremely grateful for it. Um and then from there I moved on to the Subiaco Hotel, which was Again, uh, one of the, probably the most inspirational chef that I've worked with um, was Brad Burton, uh, and he, again, like a gentle giant, um, but you knew that you had to work hard. Um, he, he had the team; the whole team was behind him, and um, it's pretty pretty incredible. Different different setting to dear friends. It was a uh, fast paced kitchen um, and. Yeah, it was on. As soon as you walked in, it was on. There was no time to no time to relax, and um, yeah, it, but it was an incredible experience.
1: How did the opportunity at Aramia arrive? Uh,
0: so um, there was quite a, uh, well, I guess, a devastating loss in uh, my immediate family, uh, which kind of uh, sent me to like to to travel. Um, so. My partner and I packed everything up and we we went overseas for a few years uh, and when when we returned we we were back in perth and, and perth just didn't it didn't really feel like home anymore, so we were spending all of our weekends down in margaret River and um, yeah, we just went bugger it let's let's move down there we We had a few friends living down here already and um yeah so we we bought a house and I took a job <laughs> in about the same week and we yeah we got down here and just went for it i guess um you know it was it was a difficult difficult move, but it's worked out now.
1: <laughs> you mentioned you spent a couple of years overseas what sort of impact did that have on on your cooking career um
0: i think from a from a produce point of view um it, it, a massive a massive impact um we – I didn't really do the, the norm, I guess. I, um, I, I did fly into London and caught up with a couple of friends, but I then got on a boat and went to the Netherlands, of all places. Um, yeah, we my, – my partner's in architecture, so uh, it was a great opportunity for her. I wanted to work Michelin, and so uh, we, we both got to sort of fulfill our dreams. Um, but, yeah, we, we went and lived in, in The Hague, in Den Haag, and it was um, it was an incredible experience working in a kitchen that spoke very little English. Um, living in quite a small city, I guess it, you know it's an important city, um, but we really kind of immersed ourselves in in the culture, and you know all of our friends were were Dutch, and it was it was fantastic. The people were just incredible, and um, easy to get a job, and yeah, it was um, it was great. So I had a good experience
1: was Was life a little bit different in in the kitchen compared to the kitchens you'd been used to
0: yeah it was it was different. Um, we, we We do five split shifts a week uh, excuse me, that wasn't um, that wasn't too unusual to you know what I'd been doing back here. Um, but we our our work day was was probably fifteen or sixteen hours. Uh, and we, we'd lunch together. So I'd go to work, we'd do our prep for the morning, then we'd do the staff meal, and it was in a hotel, the restaurant that I worked at. Uh, and so everyone would sit down and, and have food together, and then we'd go play football for an hour across on the lawn, and then we'd be back into it and into service. And so I wasn't home very often <laughs> during the days that I was working. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was different, but we... I, I don't know, I, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, you never really thought about the time and, and I'm sure I'm sure most chefs kind of feel that as well, you know, like you' you're abroad, you're doing something completely different. you you know you've got a guy coming to the back door with white truffles or you know you name it. it.'s uh, yeah, it's pretty pretty different. so you're always doing something different which which keeps it keeps it fresh.
1: The off-grid nature of Aramia, um, has has that had an impact on the way that you cook and the sort of food that you cook?
0: Yeah, I think so. my approach to produce uh, and understanding better farming, Um, the the conversations that you can have with people, um, the relationships that you can build. Uh, I think everything, everything changes as soon as you start to really understand how something is grown. Um, and the time that it takes to to get it there, um, you know, like with with our pigs, it, it's a bit ridiculous. I mean, you know, we had ten pigs running around on sixty four acres. Like, it's not not many people can do that, right? Um, but we notice the quality of the meat. Uh, we we also we grow them out to they're about or oh, thirteen thirteen months old before we send them off. And at thirteen months, they are the same size as something that's you know that's been pushed uh, and they're they're four to six months old and so that's pretty it's pretty eye-opening um, uh, yeah and then that you know that comes down to vegetables uh, you know uh, we've, i've got an incredible um, grower who I've worked with for about seven years and and you know like I think originally it, it, it's it's almost down to her that i, I started to well she got me looking at things a lot a lot more different so uh, she's a biodynamic grower certified biodynamic um, and yeah she, she just grew these carrots and, and I had these carrots and I, I, it was like I'd never eaten a carrot before like it was so sweet and delicious and, and it just made me think man we've got no idea what we're doing <laughs> like, we got no idea of good produce and anyone who grows, grows things themselves, you know, you, you have these moments always, don't you? You know, you get, geez, that basil was more basil than ever. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> how is this possible? And, um, yeah, so it's those little things. And that definitely changes the way that we approach our food. Absolutely.
1: Sustainability, whether on the farm or, you know, in a restaurant context is sometimes put in the too hard basket for operators and, Um, and also I think it's quite costly, the experience that you have, are there some really easy steps that sort of operators could take?
0: Um, well, yeah, definitely. There's, there's so much waste. I think, I think we're all, we're all pretty aware of it, um, wasting kitchens and, and in our industry, um. You know the use of plastics, things like that. Implementing little little things like that. Anyone anyone who takes single single use plastics out of their kitchen, and it, it's actually such an easy change to make. But you all have to be on board. And then once you do that, you realise that there's some something else that you can do. You realise that there's you know you can you can stop overfeeding people or cut down on portion sizes. Be more aware of you know what you're putting on a plate, what's coming back. If, if at all. And I mean, it's a balance and, you know, running, running a business, you're still, you're striving not to waste anything, obviously, because it's so, so expensive to do what we do. Um, but yeah, there's definitely, there's loads of little things. Um, I mean, it, we only use rainwater. We wash dishes with rainwater. Um, it's, it's quite crazy. Uh, but we all have to be aware in the middle of summer if, if, you know we have to cut down on the numbers that we we cook for because we can't use too much water right otherwise we're going to run out um, so so you always have to be you always have to be aware of those things and our position is quite different i think to any other any other restaurant uh, I And mean, anyone that operates in this kind of way would understand it even households i guess um but yeah there's always little things that you can do that you can do better and um I think as soon as you start down the road of the whole, I guess, sustainability, I, I don't know. I just, we, we kind of do what we do because it's the right thing to do. So we, we just try to, we just try to push ourselves and be, and be better every day. And I've surround myself with, with chefs and whatnot that um, are quite like minded and they, they get it. They get it. And you just push them a little bit and, and we get there.
1: And tell us a little bit about your cooking. Do you have a, a pork dish or two that you can tell us about that sort of epitomises sort of where you're at as a chef?
0: Oh, I mean that that kids pasta is pretty cool. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, it, you know, nothing kind of reflects our property more than more than the pork ragu. Um, uh, a dish, a, a pork dish that epitomises what we. What we stand for. I mean, the fact that the pigs are, are born and raised on the property. Uh, I think our approach to our pork is pretty. Anything we do with it is pretty special. Um, but I, I wouldn't be able to. I wouldn't be able to pinpoint a specific dish. Maybe, maybe the lardo. Maybe the. Maybe the smoked lardo, which we smoke with a bit of um, the peppy leaves, which are it's an endemic um, tree to our region and um yeah it's just super super strong peppermint flavor and when you smoke with it it's incredible it gets into everything uh but with with the pork fat it's really cool it it translates to the dishes really well so um yeah and and then a lot of the charcuterie um like uh you know our prosciutto is and uh lomos and and things like that that we that we produce are um yeah, I mean, we we love it. It's it's such a connection. It's it's born on the property. Like, it we see the pigs every day. You know, they yeah. We're we're very very lucky to have what we have.
1: You mentioned the charcuterie that you're making. Tell us a little bit about some of the some of the products that you're making and uh, the real successes that you've had there.
0: Um, successes, um, yeah, you have a few. <laughs> it's um (laughs) i hear it on i hear it with a lot of the chefs that that come on on your podcast actually you know i talk about the the successes and the failures and you you definitely have a few that you go oh i don't know what happened there uh but let's work it out um successes would be the prosciutto uh the first time i successfully made prosciutto i was i'm pretty happy um and I haven't really had a failure with the prosciutto as such, but it's, um, it's yeah, it's it, just the time that it takes to, to make something like that. It's pretty satisfying when you cut it open and it's, um, yeah, it's nice. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm trying to think of, uh, you know, we, we make a lot of copper.
1: We lo- make a lot of Lomo. Can you tell us a, um, one of the processes of one of one of the favourite products that you have that, um, that you're making? Um, the, what have we done? Um,
0: I'm trying to think of the the copper. The last copper that we did, we did with um, coriander seed and anise myrtle. Um, so the coriander seed was was saved out of the garden and. Dried and ground up, um, and so so it's it's cured for a, about a month under under a bit of pressure, and then it's uh, rolled and hung for another another couple of months really um, before we before we cut into it and have a little look at it. But um, we found that we found that those those two flavors penetrated the meat really really well, um, and with our with our pigs, I mean they're not. They're not really old animals. Um, like you know, traditionally you'd use old sows or boars for, for making a lot of the charcuterie. Uh, but we find that there's quite a lot of flavour in it in the meat, a lot of marbling. So, um, so we get a really waxy finish on on our coppers in particular. So they're pretty, yeah, pretty satisfying.
1: Um, pigs are really at the heart of lots of what you do uh, there. Do you, do you have any tips or tricks on getting the best sort of uh, roast pork or crackling?
0: Oh, um, hanging definitely hanging the animal um, when, when we first receive it back split. Um, we, we hang the harbs for about a week before we break them down. Um, and I find that if you, can, if you can leave the pig for a week to, I don't know, nine or ten days uh, just to dry out that skin, that, that little bit um, that really, that really does help with it. Uh, and then, I mean, everyone's, everyone's got a little bit of a different thing that they do, I guess, with their, with their crackling. Um, if, it's, if it's our belly uh, or even our shoulder, sometimes we like to just cook it in a, in a little uh, bath of pork stock, um, probably just an inch of pork stock in a tray, cover it with, um, cover it with a lid, and just stick that in the oven for, you know, an hour and a half. And then, then we'll remove the lid, score the skin, salt the skin, let it sit for about an hour, and then we'll go back in to roast it and slowly dry that out and then up the, up the heat and um, away you go with the crackling.
1: You've uh, had a pretty sharp career change and doing some pretty incredible things there. Um, what do you love about what you do?
0: Um, I, I do love everything about it. Uh, it's always challenging. Uh, there's, there's, um, it's, a, it's a pretty different role. Um, you know, uh, the the farming side of things is extremely uh, rewarding and and interesting. Uh, I mean, we we farm. Uh, what do we, what do we got? We got trout. We have trout in the winter. Um, we have marin. There's four hundred olive trees. So we we. Um, you know, we we press olive oil every two years, about sixteen hundred liters. Uh, we cure all the olives we use in the restaurant. Um, we've obviously got the pigs. The garden's about an acre, um, and then the fruit orchard. Uh, Sixty beehives. Yeah. So we've you know there's there's things, and the chefs all get involved with with everything. So um, yeah, there's always something there's always something happening. And I, I love it when I love it when I've got a really like-minded team, which is what, what we have right now. We're, we've been so lucky in this last 12 months. It's um, yeah, um, it's incredible, it, and it's just it's been a, a real treat to see where we've gotten to in the, in this last last year. I reckon um,
1: with a good team. <laughs> Well, Evan, it's incredible what you've created there and I'm uh, very honoured to have you on the Crackling Day to hear, today to hear your story. Um, please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon.
0: It was my pleasure, pleasure. Thanks, Anthony.
1: This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.